right, everybody. Woo! I'm so excited for today. Uh, today's one of those days where you look forward to it for a long time. Like, I think we scheduled this interview like two weeks ago. And uh, over the last two weeks, I've been reading today's guest, Chrissy Harrison. I've been reading her book. And to say that it has changed the way that I think about things um, would really be, be doing um, the anti-diet Chrissy's book a disservice because, uh, you know, as a coach, as someone who's been in the, the industry for 10 years, um, it's something where it gives you a lot of perspective. And I think the word that I would use really is, is like a, I'm going to say it wrong actually, but the ep- epidemiology, like the history of diet culture and the way that a lot of our current beliefs have come about and what we can do about it uh, to actually start to fix some of the problems that it's caused. Um, I mean, Chris, Chrissy's an amazing person. And to give you guys a little bit of background, if you haven't heard of her, um, which is crazy, how could you not? She's amazing. Um, if you haven't heard of her, so she's an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive e- eating counselor. Um, she has a weekly podcast called Food Psych. And as I mentioned, she also wrote The Anti-Diet. And I like the, sub, the subtitle for that is Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. She also offers online courses and private intuitive eating coaching from an anti-diet health at every size perspective, which means she'll never tell somebody how to deprive themselves or ban certain foods for, from your life. Uh, and really the big thing that I got from learning uh, Chrissy's story is, you know, also she's, she's a very well-written person, number one. The book's very easy to read. It's very engaging. It's fun. But at the exact same time, you get so much value and you learn so much. And you feel like you get to know her a little bit as she's writing, but that's not too surprising after you find out she's been uh, a journalist and has 17 years of uh, experience writing in uh, food and nutrition media and New York Times, Self. I mean, basically everywhere you've ever read anything, she's probably been published. So, uh, Christy, I am so excited to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Stan. That was a great introduction. I'm really glad to be here. I've been practicing that for six hours. Um, just kidding. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm so excited because, uh, like I said, it's, it's one of those things where um, hearing your, uh, you know, your story in the book and really understanding even some of the ways, like I look back, I'm like, man, I've said things or I've, I've posted about things. I'm like, I shouldn't have said that. Like, if I, if I had known what I know now, uh, I would have definitely wanted to change what I had done. But I think that's why reading this book and learning these lessons now is so important, especially in the context of, of what's happening in the world. Um, but I did have one question for you before we start. In the beginning of your book, you said that you grew up listening to punk and ska music, which is my favorite kind of music. So number one, what was your favorite band growing up? Oh my gosh, love it. Um, Operation <laughs> Ivy was one. Oh, Skank nice. Skank and Pickle. Skank and Pickle. There we go. Of. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. Um, when, you, when you said that, I was like, oh, probably Rancid. That's everybody's favorite Scott band. So uh, personally, I'm very happy to hear that you got you were a little <laughs> bit more diverse. You, you, you dabbled you. a little bit. Um, I did. That's yeah. awesome. I had so, some friends that were like <laughs> much, much more hardcore, but I, you know, stuck to kind of the, the early, the introductory phases. Uh, and so talk me through this journey of going from being a uh, punk rock Scott, maybe with a mohawk. I'm not sure. I assumed you had a mohawk because it kind of came and you wore no leather mohawk, jackets, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> had a good friend with Close a mohawk, up. but I did not have one. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I did like a fun bleach blonde bob for a while and then like did different colors with it. I like that. Uh, but talk me through the journey though. So you go from being punk rock and ska, Bay Area, right? Living the mm-hmm. life. You're a teenager. And then all of a sudden, I know you moved to New York City, I believe. Uh, and then mm-hmm. from there, all of a sudden, you are, uh, you know, learning all about food and you become this food journalist. And all of a sudden, what happens? Like you start to realize, well, maybe there's another world where I don't have to have food rules and you actually bring that to a lot of people and help a lot of people as a result. But like, talk me through that journey, because that's, that's a big transition from I'm writing articles about how, you know, you shouldn't eat certain foods or you should eat this and not that. And to now you're, you're almost doing the opposite and, and changing a lot of lives as a result. 
Yeah, no, it was a it was an interesting transition. So, I mean, growing up, I always had what's known as thin privilege. Basically, just means you know the privilege of being born into a small enough, culturally accepted enough body that nobody said anything about my weight. Nobody, you know, I mean, I certainly there was like teasing with me and my sister calling each other fat because saying fat as an insult is like an endemic part of diet culture. You know, using that concept as insulting is a kind of something that a lot of people do in our society, I think. But, you know, there was never like my parents never put me on a diet. No doctor ever told me to lose weight. No peers at school ever made fun of me for, you know, my body size or anything like that. So I had, that's what's known as thin privilege. It's kind of like male privilege or white privilege. It's, you know, these unearned social advantages that come with being born into a certain type of body instead of another type of body. And, you know, it's really unfair and something that I am working to dismantle at a lot of levels is, you know, these, these unfair advantages and disadvantages. But anyway, I had that, you know, unfair advantage of just being in a smaller body. And so I was kind of left alone in my relationship with food. And I was allowed to basically be an intuitive eater. And then, you know, everything kind of changed when I was 20 and I was studying abroad in France. I gained a little bit of weight and I decided to go on a diet. And that was like, you know, just lighting the match because even though diet culture had never targeted me personally, it had always been all around me. I had been absorbing its messages from day one, from even, you know, before I was born, probably. There's always like policing of women's bodies and how much weight they're gaining. And I remember my mom telling me that she was told she gained too much weight when she was pregnant with me or whatever, that she was gaining weight too rapidly or something like that. So, you know, diet culture has been all around me since I was conceived. And like, you know, the rest of us basically living in Western culture. And so as soon as I had that weight gain, I had that decision to try to lose weight. And then I was down the rabbit hole of dieting and counting calories and cutting carbs and all these different things, right? All the diet things that people do. I sort of got into that world, dove in headfirst. And, you know, it's kind of like everything got layered. All these different food rules got layered on top of one another. So I started with just sort of trying to eat less. And then I layered in cutting out certain foods. And then I layered in, you know, whole food plant-based diet or whole whole and, you know, minimally processed, which was like very early. This was in, you know, 2003, 2004. Like the, before Michael Pollan even published his book, Omniv The Omnivore's Dilemma, which was really the sort of launch of this like wellness, you know, clean eating type of craze. But before that, there was um, Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser. There was Marian Nestle's book, F book, Food Politics, like those things all really influenced my choices. And so then I, I was layering in like, oh, I have to buy sustainable and local and organic and, you know, minimally processed and I have to cook everything myself from scratch. And it was just like the food rules just multiplied. And I was at the beginning of my career at that point, you know, I graduated college and went into journalism and needed to find a beat because journalists all kind of have to have a beat or two to like call their own and, you know, really specialize in. And so of course, food and nutrition and health kind of became my thing because that's what I was obsessing over all the time. And, you know, I focused on, I started out at working in an environmental magazine, actually a couple different environmental magazines and was really interested in environmental issues and sort of took the focus specifically into like organic food and sustainability and, all of that stuff. Um, and so, you know, that, that just really multiplied those food rules. And I was having a harder and harder time making choices and going grocery shopping and like just living my life. You know, the food rules started to take over my life, take over my mental energy, my time, you know, colonized really everything about my life. And that continued, you know, because writing about food and nutrition, you have license to do that. You have license to just go down rabbit holes of research. And, you know, I really fanned the flames of some emerging trends like the gluten-free trend for people without celiac disease, you know, gluten-free as a diet. Um, I, you know, just, I wrote pieces that I look back on now and cringe, but at the time it felt so important. It felt so true. It felt like the cutting edge of something, you know, like we're changing the food system and isn't this great? And this is the way. And, you know, my own relationship with food got more and more disordered or really was very disordered, I think, when, when I first started and then kind of went through different levels of disorder all along the way. But, you know, it was, it, it was taking over my life and I was ping-ponging back and forth between restriction and binging, really, because I was eating in a much, you know, an increasingly sort of 
structured, hemmed in, black and white kind of way and telling people how to eat and feeling like I had to like walk that walk in my life. And then secretly behind the scenes, not being able to keep that up. And so ending up binging on the foods that I was forbidding myself, not realizing that that is so common. That's almost the um, inevitable response to food restriction. There's like a tiny percentage of people for whom that's not the response. And that's sort of maybe something to do with the genetic difference and brain wiring and chemistry and stuff, because the people who don't have that response of binging tend to be the ones that end up with anorexia, end up with, you know, severe food restriction that is only restriction and is not accompanied by binging. But, you know, for everyone else, it's basically this restrict binge cycle is kind of what people fall into the more they try to cut out foods and eat less and eat differently and, you know, micromanage their eating. So, you know, that's really what was going on for me. And I was working as a food writer, you know, started specializing in um, or started working at a, a food magazine. And I was kind of like the, you know, organic sustainability person there. Um, and I was around a lot of people who had pretty good relationships with food every day at work. And so I was kind of being brought out of that a little bit. I, you know, I think my work as a food writer actually helped me to recover in some ways, but it wasn't until I went back to school to become a dietitian. Um, my, the magazine I was working for folded. I kind of wanted something a little more stable than journalism. I went back to school in 2009 and um, started studying to become a dietitian and get my master's in public health nutrition. And not through any school learning, but actually through some outside research that I was doing for a book that I never ended up publishing, um, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating and by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And that book was, you know, the starting point for some, and that research for that book too, that I never ended up writing, discovered some other really interesting research that I included in my book actually 10 years later um, that, you know, really helped me to start that process of recovery in earnest and start getting back to the place of connecting with my body around food and nutrition and, you know, and, and not making nutrition be such a be all end all thing, you know, just starting to honor my hunger and, eat with, you know, satisfaction in mind rather than just dietary perfection. And with a lot of therapy and time and practice, I started to really unravel all those food restrictions. But it really wasn't until I started working in the eating disorder field after going through my training to become a dietitian that I really recognized when I was going to conferences and trainings and reading books and absorbing information from other eating disorder professionals that it's not enough just to say, you know, for people with eating disorders, we have intuitive eating as the goal because that was, you know, it's sort of considered the gold standard of recovery or like the, the ultimate thing we're aiming towards with eating disorder recovery is getting people back in touch with their own body's cues and not making them have to like eat according to a meal plan for the rest of their lives. Um, it's not enough just to just to do that and have that be the goal for people in eating disorder recovery that actually an intuitive relationship with food in our bodies and not thinking about weight and not prescribing, you know, the same disordered behaviors that we prescribe for larger body people, right, are the ones at my you know, colleague and mentor Deb Burgard says this much better than I do, like that we prescribe to fat people what we diagnose as eating disorders and thin people. You know, that's, she's one of the founders of the health at every size movement. And I think that observation for her as an eating disorders therapist was actually one of the things that led her to start, you know, this movement for health at every size. And so, you know, as I started to learn those things and recognize, oh yeah, it's really messed up that we're teaching people in larger bodies to do these things that we're actually trying to unteach people who have eating disorders. Why is there a double standard? Why are these behaviors bad for people in smaller bodies, but good for people in larger bodies? And actually, really, there's no difference. And a lot of people in larger bodies have undiagnosed eating disorders or severely disordered eating that they're not getting help for because they're actually getting applauded and having their, you know, those disordered behaviors recommended to them by doctors. And so, you know, the system is just completely messed up. And, you know, I want to say and acknowledge, I did mention my thin privilege before, and, and I'll say like, I don't have the lived experience of being in a larger body, obviously. So when I talk about weight stigma and the way that that is baked into our culture, you know, that's from my academic learning, that's from my work with clients and what I've learned from other colleagues in the field and people who do actually have a lived experience of living in larger bodies. And, you know, what I've learned from them really is that weight stigma in and of itself and from 
scientific research as well, weight stigma in and of itself is harmful to people's well-being. And we need to stop stigmatizing people for their body size and stop prescribing dieting behaviors to larger body people because it messes up their relationship with food just as much as it does for someone who's smaller. I, I remember, uh, I actually read, I think, I, so I read, uh, you, you mentioned Tracy Mann in your book. Uh, Tracy's coming on pretty soon. And uh, I, maybe it was from her in her book, or maybe it was from, um, from you in your book. I remember a, a little while ago, I read the study also about, uh, about people in, uh, in larger bodies and when there's a, a, a stigma around um, weight and a stigma around certain things. It's actually like a great way to almost do the opposite of whatever the, the end goal is there. Like it's a great way to actually increase the, the chances of heart disease and you know, that chronic stress, like I think uh, it's called like all allostatic load. Um, mm -hmm. It actually increases all those negative things that we're assigning to somebody's weight when really that's, that's not true. Um, and, and that was probably one of my biggest takeaways was like just the importance of the way that we communicate as a coach, as a, a human being, um, what it even means to be healthy. And really when the definition is put solely on weight, it seems like uh, there's so many things we're, we're not seeing. You know what I mean? Like there's so many mm -hmm. things we're not seeing, like lifestyle and stress. Um, talk to me a little bit just about like, you know, I think there's, there's an interesting thing in the fitness industry of health at every size. And some people get all like, you know, angry about it. And it's like, you don't get it then. Like if you actually understood it, mm -hmm. you, you probably agree. Um, talk, talk to me just a little bit about like what exactly when we talk about health at every size and, and intuitive eating, like what, what exactly does that mean? And, and why is it so important when, when you actually look at reality versus what we're, what we're being told basically? Yeah, such a great question. So I think, you know, health at every size and intuitive eating are frameworks for supporting people's health. You know, health at every size goes beyond just food and movement to like other forms of self-care. And intuitive eating is sort of the way in which health at every size gets applied to food and physical activity. And, you know, these frameworks are meant and they're, they're really rooted in social justice principles of doing no harm and non-discrimination and helping people um, be resilient to stigma and, you know, not be stigmatized for their size and for other other factors, other identities, um, and, you know, helping people pursue well-being and pursue whatever health-promoting behaviors they have within their capacity to the extent that they want to, right? Because of course, health is not a moral obligation. It's, you know, within the principles of health at every size, it's very clear that we're not obligating anyone to pursue health at any size, right? But those who are able to, and, you know, there's certainly so many barriers to pursuing health behaviors, but those who, who desire to and who are able to, um, we have tools and we have techniques to help you make peace with food in your body, but also take care of your body and, you know, feel more at ease that have nothing to do with weight loss, that have nothing to do with fat loss, that have nothing to do with shrinking yourself. And in fact, you know, the data really show that a, weight loss is unsustainable and harmful. So not only does it not work, not only do diets not work, right? They have like up to a 98% failure rate within five years. So, you know, most people, the vast majority of people who lose weight intentionally end up regaining all of the weight they lost, if not more. And in fact, about two thirds of people end up regaining more than they lost. And Know, so there's that piece of like it's just ineffective and it's also harmful because weight cycling which is the you know yo-yo of weight loss and regain that happens for again the vast vast majority of dieters almost everyone is independently bad for your health no matter what size you started at no matter what size you gained to no matter how much weight you lost and gained weight cycling is an independent risk factor for things like cardiovascular disease and other you know, heart and other chronic conditions like um, certain forms of cancer, diabetes, early mortality as well. Like it's associated with and predicts all of these things 
that get blamed on weight itself. Weight cycling alone, a couple of studies found that weight cycling alone could all account for all of the excess heart disease risk found in a couple of large-scale studies, all of the excess risk found in, in um, people and larger bodies in those studies. So it's not weight itself, you know, that is causing that. It's, it's the weight cycling that people are going through. We can't just blame weight itself. And then similarly, weight stigma, you know, the, the, the discrimination against the systematic bias against people in larger bodies and the constant, you know, um, telling people that they need to lose weight and assuming that weight loss is the goal for larger bodied people. All of that actually also is an independent health risk factor. Weight stigma uh, increases people's risk, again, of the things that get blamed on weight itself, heart disease, diabetes, some forms of cancer, early mortality. And Again, weight stigma, not weight itself, is really the thing that we need to address. It causes stress in the body. It, you know, it's associated with chronic inflammation, which we know is a factor in many diseases. And again, we can't say it causes diseases necessarily, but it's it's a factor because people, when people are under stress, it does tend to increase their risk of various chronic diseases. And so, you know, again, it's it's often said in our culture that it's assumed, you know, that the weight is causing those poor health outcomes. When in fact, weight stigma and weight cycling can explain, you know, most of, I would say, those increased risks in people in larger bodies when you look at those things together. And then you add in things like poverty and systemic racism and, you know, exposure to these social determinants of health that we know also account for the lion's share of modifiable health, health outcomes at the population level. You add in those things, you know, that plus weight stigma and weight cycling, it's like what's left that we could actually blame on higher weight? Probably nothing in my view. You know, from what I've seen in the research, I really think that all the excess risk we see for larger body people can be explained by all of these other factors. And there's reams of scientific evidence to support that. It's just that it doesn't get interpreted that way or sort of framed that way by the uh, mainstream community, scientific community and medical field, because we're so rooted in diet culture. We're so rooted in this fat phobic way of thinking about bodies that jumps to assuming higher weights are bad. And there's this huge machinery, there's this huge industry that is built on shrinking larger bodies and that so many researchers are a part of. They take consulting fees. They take money from pharmaceutical companies that make weight loss drugs. They take money from diet industry, like actual diet companies, Weight Watchers International or Jenny Craig, they have their own diet companies sometimes. You know, some of the leading researchers in the quote-unquote obesity field, I mean, as uh, I believe it was Tracy Mann or I forget who it was actually. I think it was Tracy Mann. I think it was an interview that I did with her, if not in her book, but I think she said this quote, which is like, it's hard to find a, a major researcher in the field of quote-unquote obesity who doesn't have deep ties to the pharmaceutical and weight loss industries. And so, you know, that it's, I mean, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but when you actually look at the evidence, it's really there and it's astounding. It's astounding how, how biased our research community is when it comes to issues of food and weight and especially, you know, weight loss because weight loss drugs, weight loss diets, weight loss surgeries are, um, touted as this be-all, end-all, as, as being effective with very little evidence to support it. And when you really start to dig into the research, even weight loss surgery, which is, you know, seen as the foolproof solution to lose weight, right? Even weight loss surgery, 50% or more of people have significant weight regain after surgery. And that's something that they don't tell you in, in consultations. And it, you know, the sort of trajectory of weight regain for most people who do diets is within five years, you regain all the weight that you lost. There's some evidence to suggest that the trajectory is just pushed outward, like the um, sort of event horizon is longer, I guess, with, with weight regain for weight loss surgery, where it's just within like 10 years or so, people end up regaining the weight. So, you know, and with all kinds of countless complications that come with it and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars spent on, on getting this surgery and the risk of death is not nothing, you know. So 
all of that to say that our society and our, our medical field is really under the sway of diet culture and a particular way of thinking about body size and about food that when you really scratch the surface, when you really get into it, just is not borne out by the evidence. Yeah. And, and that was definitely something where when I was reading um, your book, it was just so prevalent uh, how much of it, you know, when, when you think of fitness, like, I mean, I would say if I were to think back and look at, you know, all of the people that I've coached, vast majority, if you ask them, you know, why did you join the gym or, you know, why are you, you know, why are you even talking to me basically as, as a personal trainer, like 99% of the time it would be weight loss. And, and I think we're, we're just taught that that's kind of the, like you said, the be all end all measure for, uh, for health. But ironically, like, like you said, when you look at the research, when you look at what's I mean, for lack of a better say, like actually true and actually happening. Um, it's usually not the case. And it's, it's usually, you know, there's so many things that happen at a small, subtle, uh, micro level, but at the exact same time at a very high level, that's very obvious um, that really do have an impact on the way that people experience life for lack of a better way to say it. And, and, that kind of goes back to uh, to stigma, to you know, discrimination, but also to you know, socioeconomic status. And I remember, you know, one of the things that uh, that you had even talked about, you know, in the book, and, and you mentioned it now, is you know, weight loss surgeries. Like that's tens of thousands of dollars. How many people can actually afford that? And uh, and quote unquote, health foods are very expensive. And there's so many things that I think, uh, even you'd mentioned in, in the book where you're talking about. Uh, you know, how the traditional American, once again, quote unquote, healthy diet is, is very much so classist and racist, because it takes away a lot of uh, cultural foods, you know, foods that uh, people, people eat, because it's a part of their culture. And it's, it's, it's almost like uh, a thing where when you take that away, you're taking away their ability to enjoy time with their family. I mean, I remember uh, I know somebody was coaching a, a, a person who had, you know, just moved to the United States and they're like, oh, you know, I think they moved from, um, I want to say like Peru or something like that. And, and they said, oh, you know, uh, you're eating way too much rice. You need to stop eating rice. That's why you can't lose weight. And, you know, they're like, well, that's like, a, that's a staple. Like, that's what my family and I cook. Like, that's what we do together. That's, you know, we, we make these meals. This is just kind of a, a part of how I, how I eat. And, uh, and I, I heard you say that in the book and I remember saying, oh my God, I've actually seen it. Like I've seen this happen in real time and it didn't click then, but, and, and it felt a little bit weird then, but looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what I saw. You know, I, I finally have a definition for it, you know, um, talk to me. I think it's especially relevant right now. Um, talk to me a little bit about how much discrimination and, uh, stigma tie into, into, uh, you know, all of these, these outcomes and just, just the, the, I guess you'd say just the quality of life, um, for people, you know, the stress is, it becomes a load that you carry all the time. Um, mm -hmm. how does that fit in? And also what can coaches do? Like if you're a coach and you're listening and you're like, all right, well, I know that this is a problem. Like, what can I do about it? Uh, but talk to me a little bit. Cause that was, that was probably one of my favorite parts of the book because I learned so much. Mm, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating and mind blowing. And I knew, you know, I had heard that diet culture and that fat phobia were racist, and you know that a lot of the ways that we were telling people how to eat were racist and classist and you know inaccessible. And kind of knew that from my public health background as well. But seeing the evidence and reading the research and getting into the historical documents and you know reading the historians who cover this stuff. Um, was really mind blowing to me too when I was doing the research. So, um, you know, I, one great source that I had on this was a, a sociologist named Sabrina Strings, who wrote a great book called Fearing the Black Body The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Definitely recommend people check that book out because it really gets into the nuances and the ways in which, you know, basically the thin ideal is based in whiteness and the idea that blackness is bad. And, you know, another scholar that whose work I really appreciated was Amy Erdman Farrell, who wrote a book called Fat Shame. Um, and, you know, both of those of those scholars really talk about how this idea of, you know, hierarchy of bodies was 
necessary for justifying enslavement, right? For justifying the slave trade and the continued subjugation of, you know, people from Africa, basically. And also to a large extent, you know, people, Native American folks from the U.S., and, you know, so the, there are all these racist texts written to justify enslavement that started around, you know, the 1500s, 1600s and kind of multiplied out from there. And there was this idea that, you know, there's a great chain of being where people of color were sort of the furthest away from God. And you go up the chain with this like racist hierarchy of body types and colors. And then you get to like white Northern European men or like at the top of this great chain of being and closest to God. And this idea of the great chain of being then got repurposed in the mid 1800s, early to mid 1800s by early evolutionary biologists who were looking at evolution and decided that people of color were less evolved and white people were more evolved. And it was always like women a step down from men of each culture on this new great chain of being that was about like who's the most evolved, you know, not necessarily who's closest to God, although I think that idea didn't quite go away either, right? So it was like now you're you're more evolved and less like a, an animal and you're also closer to God. And that evolutionary biology sort of twist or spin on racism um, also involved a lot of cataloging of different physical traits. Like early biologists were obsessed with cataloging physical traits from people around the country. And they would look at, you know, the length of your nose or the shape of your ears or the shape of your head. I think this is also where we get phrenology, you know, this idea that you can like tell something about someone's character by looking at the shape of their head. And so one of the traits that they like cataloged and sort of drew meaning from was body size, right? Was, was fatness. And they supposedly found greater evidence of fatness in people of color from different communities around the world, different, you know, locations and in women in general. And so, you know, it was framed as fatness was a sign of being a person of color or being a woman and that therefore that made you less evolved and that, you know, people who were more evolved and sort of aristocrats and men um, were thinner. And so that thinness was actually the thing to strive for because thinness was a sign of greater evolution. And that's one of the, the there's so many different threads and, and sort of roots of diet culture that were coming into play in the 1800s because that's really where it sort of took hold of the popular imagination in the Western world and particularly in the U.S. But that racist root is really fundamental and really important to this creation of a myth that thinness is better and we all need to strive for thinness. And there were really even explicit texts in the early days of diet culture, you know, the early days of this thin ideal that, were, that would say like, you know, white women, you need to lose weight and be thin in order to not look African or Irish because the Irish were being demonized back then too, you know, it was like, you have to sort of, if you're going to be like a white upper middle class or, you know, upper class Protestant woman, a good um, wasp household, you know, provider, you need to be striving for thinness because otherwise you're aligning yourself with these people who are, um, you know, less evolved or less, less worthy really, right? And so obviously this is all terrible racist thinking, but that's what that's what started the weight loss industry. That's at the root of why diets exist these days, why, you know, this wellness culture that we have now that says it's not about dieting, but is still about losing weight and thinness and idealizes thinness in so many ways. It goes back to those racist beliefs about which bodies were superior to others. And so you know, there's lots more to say about that. And, and Sabrina Strings wrote that wonderful book and I interviewed her for my podcast. So I'd definitely encourage people to check that out. But um, yeah, I think it, you know, when people who are social justice minded or, you know, at all concerned about anti-racism work, which we all hopefully should be as coaches and especially in this cultural moment now, because we're seeing, you know, Ahmaud Arbery was killed and there's been a, you know, uprising about that and then George Floyd and the protests that have started from that, you know, I think that is, um, it's, this is a cultural reckoning we're having with the violence that disproportionately happens to black people in this country and it's not okay and it needs to stop. And, you know, if you're a coach and you care about those things and you care about helping people, you know, across the, across the race and gender and, um, 
ethnic spectrum, you know, across all kinds of different identities, then it's really important to add body size to that mix and to, you know, commit to helping people in larger bodies without forcing them to lose weight or without encouraging weight loss, without co-signing weight loss, without offering weight loss, and recognizing that in promoting weight loss, you're really promoting this oppressive belief system that is based in racism and misogyny and xenophobia and such harmful ideas that have no place in our culture. I, I love that. And, and I think it's, it's something where really awareness precedes change, right? Like you have to be aware of it in order to be able to make the changes in, in the way that you communicate uh, to be able to, you know, actually make a difference is you have, you have to be aware of it. And, you know, it, it brought me back to, uh, it's my favorite quote probably ever. Uh, and it's from Carl, Carl Rogers who started humanistic theory. And, uh, and the quote is, I'm probably going to say it wrong, but you know, it's, it's only once somebody is truly accepted for who they are, can they change, right? Like only, only when somebody is like really accepted and, and that, that also means, you know, not a assuming weight loss is the goal, but also uh, letting letting people know that it's okay to be where they are, right? And and it's mm-hmm. they're accepted regardless of their background or regardless of you know the color of their skin or their gender or you know whatever it might be, whatever their 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 body looks like. You know, if they have tattoos, if they have piercings, if they have a larger body, a smaller, but you know, who cares? Like treating them as a, as a person and, and seeing the inherent value in that alone, um, I think is, is really where like every coach has to come from. Right. Uh, Absolutely. and, and I'm, I'm interested though. Like, I think there's, for me, it's, it's a little bit hard because I see kind of both sides of the fitness com- conversation where I think everybody's getting to the same thing. Uh, in that there are people where it's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, count macros, flexible dieting and and stuff like that. But there's still that, that sense of restriction. Um, and I think what I'm interested in from you is, is when you think about, you know, you have people and, uh, let's say they, they come and they work with a personal trainer or whatever it might be. Uh, when you have somebody and let's say they've consumed the, the content that says, count calories. It's all about macronutrients and all this stuff. Uh, but maybe, and maybe they've tried it and maybe it worked a little bit and they're like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to, you know, feel like I can eat carbs and this is great. Um, I think the hard thing for me is when you have somebody come in and they, they are, you know, in that place where they've been stigmatized, they've been, um, you know, in, in one way or another or in many ways, uh, discriminated against and they're trying to almost use that to to fix who they are because they've been told that there's something wrong with them even though there isn't um, how do you have that conversation with somebody be like hey like it's okay to be you like it, mm-hmm. I accept you for who you are you know because I think it's a, definitely a, a hard conversation because you're probably saying something that's very rarely if ever been really said to that person Yeah, it is a hard conversation. And I want to acknowledge too, you know, the privilege that I have and that you have as well. You know, we're, we're thin people. I'm white, cisgender, able-bodied, you know, have so many privileges. And for me to sit with someone who is trying to lose weight to escape stigma, right? To, to mitigate the weight stigma they face in the world that is only amplified when they're a person of color, a black person, you know, have other marginalized identities. Um, that you know it it's not my place necessarily to tell someone you can't access this this greater privilege that you're trying to access right so it's more of a conversation about what is actually effective what do we know to be true based on the evidence i can share that because i do have that background and that you know learning to be able to share with people and to say that you know you deserve equal rights, you deserve respect, you deserve justice and care, no matter the size of your body, no matter the color of your skin or the shape of your body or the religion you practice or anything else, right? To make my values very clear. And I think it, you know, can take all different forms, right? When you're talking with someone and you notice them making a self-critical statement, you can gently point that out and say, you know, 
it's interesting that you that you say that about yourself like tell me where that's coming from or oh wow that sounded a little harsh you know i'm wondering if we can unpack that right and and you know just pointing out and you know offering ways that people can have greater self compassion you know and opening conversations about how their how someone's you know body size might have affected their life how it, you know in terms of the privileges or lack of privileges that they might have, right? The stigma that they've faced and empathizing with their feelings about the stigma without holding weight loss out as the solution, right? And saying, of course, I understand that you would want to lose weight given these things that you experienced. Of course, weight loss would feel like the answer. And we know, unfortunately, that it really isn't in terms of supporting your overall well-being, your physical and mental health, that, you know, in fact, weight loss very rarely ever, if ever, is sustainable, that it generally tends to lead to more harm than good by creating weight cycling and weight stigma, which we know are independent health risk factors. And, you know, so that if you're trying to access this greater peace and ease and moving through the world, and of course, we all deserve that and you deserve that respect and that compassion and care. But, you know, pursuing weight loss, unfortunately, is sort of a false way to do that. It's not a way that's going to have the benefits that you seek. And so let's talk about how we can help you get the respect and care and support that you deserve in all different areas of your life, you know, and work to, you know, recognizing that society needs to change as well and that we have to work to dismantle these oppressive structures and that weight loss really isn't going to bring the fulfillment that you seek. And it's a tough conversation. And some people, you know, I mean, I'm, I have a certain amount of privilege in doing this work at this point in my career because, you know, for the last five to seven years, I've, you know, really, really seriously five years have had my marketing very clear that I don't do weight loss, that I'm not about that, that, you know, people, I don't want people coming to me for that, really, that what I offer is something different and here's what I do and don't offer. And so the clients who come through my door and the people who listen to my podcast and who sign up for my courses kind of know what I'm about already and are seeking that out, you know, are in a place where they're ready for that. Even if they're ambivalent, which of course most people are, right? It's really difficult to heal from diet culture, but they're committed to doing it when they come in to see me or to work with me. And that's different from, you know, how, I, how it was for me five to seven years ago, how it is for so many people probably listening to this, right? That your practice might be more general type of practice. You might be coaching, you know, you might be just doing life coaching or something. You might be doing general health coaching or working in a fitness studio and doing fitness coaching. And so a lot of people are going to be coming to you for weight loss. And, you know, I really do advocate the benefits of being very clear about your values and your marketing as you get deeper and deeper into health at every size and anti-diet work, being clear about that in your language so that you're attracting clients who get it and are ready for that so that you're not having to have these kind of uncomfortable fence straddly conversations with people where it's like there's one foot in the diet world, but one foot in the health at every size. And, you know, I mean, I straddled the fence myself for a number of years. It was, you know, it's, it's hard to get over the fence without straddling it at some point. Right. But um, I do think there's value for coaches in doing some deep learning around this issue and deep unlearning around this issue and coming to a place where you truly can feel like it's in alignment for you to say, I don't offer weight loss. Here's why. Here's what I know to be true. And I do support you in these ways. And I'll support you in your well-being without offering weight loss because I believe weight loss is harmful. But, you know, if you're not there yet, if you're not at a place where you've done that learning and unlearning yet to where you can truly say that and be in alignment with that, I think it's going to be harder. I think there are going to be more of those difficult conversations and those clients who are like, ah, I just can't do it. I have to try to lose weight. And it's, you know, every provider I think has to reckon with that for themselves, what, what they're willing to do in that situation. You know, are you going to, are you going to co-sign somebody's weight loss or are you going to say, I'll keep working with you. I'll keep supporting you, but I just want to, you know, reiterate every time that it's appropriate and possible that, you know, weight loss isn't the answer that I see and that, you know, are there some other ways we can work with, with you to help you 
um, heal your relationship with food and, you know, move your body in ways that are pleasurable and, and accessible to you and, you know, helping people see that there are other options available and sort of being there to support them for whenever they're ready. But it is messy and it is difficult. So I just want to, you know, send compassion to coaches who are struggling with that too. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, and one thing that, that definitely came to mind, um, with that is, you know, it's, it's, I think it's very much so something where I think unlearning is, is the perfect word. And it's, it's unlearning on both sides of, you know, when, when you try to have that conversation, you're, you're really trying to help somebody unlearn years of, of what they've been told probably for their whole life. And like you said, in the beginning, before their life even started. And, uh, and, and what I'm interested in too is, you know, so you have, uh, you have these, these people where you're working with them right now and, and you've been able to number one, communicate with them in a way that I think is great because you're, you're essentially put planting your flag in the ground and saying, this is what I stand for. And this is the world that I want to create. And, you know, if you're willing to come with me, let's do it. And, and I think it, it gets people excited and, uh, and at the exact same time, there's also the element of, uh, for a lot of people, it can be scary. And so maybe they're not ready. They're, they're kind of in that contemplation phase or they're preparing to change. Um, but I'm also, I'm interested in, in, you know, for you, you brought up something I think, uh, is very, very important as a fitness professional, because we're usually, you know, very much so in control over, uh, you know, what people are, are doing as far as, uh, movement, you know, we're writing out these programs and we're like, you know, figuring out how many sets and reps to do and, um, you know, giving them, you know, some guidance on food and, uh, but really like the workouts are when somebody walks into the gym or, you know, wherever it might be, they hire you for online coaching, you know, um, a lot of the times like the workouts are, are a big part of that. And you, you brought up like pleasurable movement. And I think that's something where people oftentimes will associate the harder I work out, if I can burn a thousand calories, like that's a better workout when, uh, usually a, that's like super burnout. And then all of a sudden maybe injury cause you're working so hard that, you know, things, things are not going to be able to handle it. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it also, it's a relationship almost with just fitness in general to me, where it's the, the thought process of restriction and extremes and, uh, almost punishing yourself with food. It mm-hmm. carries over very much so to people's relationship, um, with, with exercise. And, uh, and I think also it's, it's also a, a point where, there's stigma and discrimination that happens within the fitness side of things um, that almost dissuades people from being able to find pleasurable movement or movement that, that would be pleasurable. Like they don't even want to explore it because of some of these stigmas and their perception of what it's supposed to look like. Um, talk, talk me through, you know, how, how you see that. And, you know, once again, like, you know, as, as a coach, uh, finding that, that pleasurable movement and finding something where people feel confident, um, with moving their bodies. Um, how how do you kind of see that all fitting in? Because I think they're, they're so similar that it's, it's usually people will do a diet and exercise super hard, right? They'll, they'll Mm -hmm. always kind of tie the two things together. You know, it's, it's very rarely something where people are like, Oh, I'm not going to exercise. I'm just going to do this. You know, it's, it's always Mm -hmm. one or the other, you know? Yeah, totally. They they do tend to go together and that's, you know, another layer to this that makes it so difficult with people's relationship with movement, I think, is that it, it tends to be really tied to diet culture and hard to untangle those things, even sometimes more so than food, because I think some people at least, you know, I know I did, had a relationship with food as a child and, you know, for me, luckily into my, into my teens, um, that was able to main, you know, stay intuitive. And, and I didn't fall prey to like a lot of the good, bad thinking about food. But, you know, when it came to fitness, I feel like I always kind of internalized this idea that like, it's gotta be hard and it's no pain, no gain. And it's, you know, you're doing it for these reasons that are sort of external not for just the joy of movement. Although, you know, there were certainly things, activities I did that I enjoyed and liked, but when it came to like physical activity or, you know, PE class in school, right, that was always just this like grueling, boring chore. 
And, you know, I think a lot of people have that relationship with it, especially, you know, adding the layer of weight stigma to that, right? Where if you're someone who grew up in a larger body or were in a larger body at a certain point in your childhood and had PE classes where you were being, you know, targeted and called out and made to climb the rope and couldn't do it or doing the physical fitness test and couldn't do it and are laughed at in front of your peers, like that leaves a real scar. That's traumatizing. You know, that's weight stigma. And, so, you know, people who have those kinds of histories with movement, I think, can be very, um, you know, caught up in having to do it a certain way or also have an aversion to movement in a lot of cases and feel like they kind of have to, like, hold their nose and do it. I think sometimes that's a lot of people who come to trainers and, co- and fitness coaches because, you know, they're like, I have to, like, be accountable to someone and I'm not going to do it if I'm not. So I'm just going to, you know, work with this trainer and hold my nose and do it. And so I think that, you know, fitness coaches have a a great role to play potentially here in helping people get back to a sense of pleasure in movement and in not creating, you know, detailed lists of sets and reps, but in actually inviting people to find, you know, in this next week that we have between our sessions, like explore different forms of movement that you enjoy in your life. Explore what might be helpful to, you know, what you might really love engaging in, right? Like, did you dance as a kid with, you know, nobody watching? Was it like just purely for fun? Did you like to skateboard? Did you like to ride your bike? Like, whatever it might be, you know, there's probably things that, you know, unfortunately, some some kids were so shamed about their body size and fitness was so tied up with that from the get-go that they may not have those memories easily accessible. But that's something that you can kind of talk through with your client. And in a lot of cases, people do have at least one thing that they remember as just like a pure joy, like oh, swimming in the ocean or you know, whatever it might be. And so, you know, inviting people to start practicing those things and maybe doing some fitness coaching around, okay, what what do we need to do like to help you get ready for this thing that you want to be engaging in so that you don't get injured? You know, like I will occasionally have like dance parties where I'm, you know, getting back to my punk and ska days, like do a little headbanging or, or pogoing or something. And like, then the next day I'm like, oh God, my neck is so sore, you know? And like, okay, so maybe I need to do some yoga where I'm stretching out my neck. That's like my thing for helping me do the thing that I want to do and helping me recover and prevent, you know, long-term injury from this thing that I did that was kind of hard on my neck, you know, or, or helping people develop if, if their thing is like they love playing soccer, then helping them develop some stamina and some, you know, strength in their legs and their knees so that they can kick in different ways, right? It's like looking at what someone might want to do fitness activity, you know, I don't even love to say fitness, but like activity wise, right? Movement wise, and then do coaching that supports that. And even, you know, depending on your sort of coaching style and what location you have available to you, like if you coach in a park, for example, which I know some, some coaches do, you could like have a little pickup game of soccer or have a, a game of basketball or go for a little run, you know, have a race or something like that. Right. Um, all of those ways of sort of bringing more joy into the movement rather than just having it be like X number of sets and reps of this in a gym under harsh fluorescent lights, like no fun, you know? Yeah. And to me, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I love, I love what kind of reconnecting also just with like the childhood choice. When you were saying that, I was like, Oh man, I've been thinking about getting like a mountain bike and going mountain biking. So that's, I used to love doing that. And I actually live somewhere, you know, in Boston, it's kind of hard. There's not too many good trails. That's where I'm from. And now I'm in Austin and I'm like, oh, there's some cool trails I can actually go down and, and get to experience that same thing. And, uh, and also just, just the idea of, uh, it kind of ties, I guess, into like a very, I'm like a self-determination theory nerd of, you know, the idea that intrinsic motivation, you know, that, that almost where it's like a part of you and you, you want to do it because it brings you uh, just that intrinsic value, which is always where we want people to be like it, 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 it is a much more sustainable type of motivation than uh, I want to do X because then I get Y and maybe Y doesn't happen or maybe you get Y and then you don't have anything else to do. Right. And I think, you know, being able to tie exercise into something that really supports um, I think exercise in itself as things feel easier as, you know, you know, maybe if you're doing yoga and you can do a different pose, that's what you're doing to support your, your joyful movement, or that is your joyful movement. And you do strength training to support your yoga. And then you realize, Oh, I can, 
you know, I can hold a, a plank for longer or I can do a headstand and, and like I'm noticing some progress there. Like exercise in itself supports competence very well. But I think also the relatedness within that of, you know, I feel very connected to why I'm doing it. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm almost doing this for a reason that's like uh, getting better at, you know, whatever it might be or being able to, uh, you know, like you said, if they're playing soccer, I can do it for longer. Like I don't get as tired. This is great. Um, and it only just brings more joy and, uh, and being able to always have a foundation of like, it's, it's meant to be enjoyable, um, is, is to me, I mean, that's, that's brilliant. I love that. Um, yeah. And I want to point out too, that like that's possible at any size, you know, I think sometimes people will come in for looking for weight loss and say, you know, the reason I want to lose weight is so I can like run around after my kids or the reason I want to lose weight is so that I can climb stairs without getting winded. Right. And, you know, those are things that can happen. You can, you can achieve those goals without having to have weight loss, right? You can achieve those goals by building, you know, my colleague Regan Chastain, who's a health coach and also a larger bodied person who's finished, she's actually holds the Guinness world record for the heaviest person to ever complete a marathon. She's like a, an athlete and a triathlete and amazing human being. And she, she always says, you know, that the pillars of, um, of, you know, physical activity are, you know, strength, stamina, flexibility, and sports-specific technique. And that those are all things that you can develop regardless of body size and regardless of whether you lose weight in the process, that you can develop more strength to do things like run a marathon without having to lose weight. You know, she completed the marathon at, you know, I won't say the number because I don't like to say numbers to trigger people, but I mean, you can look it up. She's, you know, a heavy, like larger bodied person. She, she finished a marathon, you know, had the strength, stamina, sports-specific technique, flexibility to be able to do that and was able to develop that through practice and through training instead of through weight loss. Absolutely. And even, you know, uh, like you said, being able to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to really like, uh, let's say, they want to play soccer and even if they have a knee injury or, or something like that, I think e even just being able to say, okay, well let's just go for a walk and kick the soccer ball and, and have those like smaller things still bring it a little bit into, uh, you know, into what they really enjoy and, and making that movement joyful. And also it's completely irrelevant, you know, what, a, what the number on the scale says. I mean, uh, I think one of the, one of the big things that I, I took away from, there's a, a really good um, professor and, and researcher named John Kiley. And he basically talks about like, no matter how you program a workout or even, you know, multiple workouts, months of programming, whatever, um, they're all going to work. But the most important thing is that there's a, a relationship between the coach and the athlete or the coach and the client. And, you know, I, I think it, it really comes down to, like you said, it's, is it sports specific? Is it going to, you know, really be able to tie into, you know, what, what they enjoy doing. And, and also is it something where, uh, they actually kind of trust the, they trust the process and they trust the person that's delivering the process too. Um, I, I love that. And I know we're, we're coming up a little bit on time, but I do have to ask you the hardest question, unless there's anything else you want to add. I guess one thing I'll add to that that I always like to say in conversations about physical activity is just that there are some people for whom physical activity is compulsive and part of an eating disorder, disordered eating pattern that they actually would do well to let go of movement and not move as much and, and even, you know, in many cases, stop movement altogether for a period of time until they can heal their relationship with it and engage in it in a way that is not so toxic. So I think like it's helpful and important for for you know, physical activity coaches and trainers to understand the signs of that and kind of know what to look out for. And that's like a whole other conversation, but just to kind of plant that seed for people and put it on people's radar that you might have clients who have a really disordered relationship with movement and those clients can be in any size body, but, you know, kind of learning to, to recognize the warning signs and to help, you know, give them permission to take time off or to do really gentle movement, I think is really important in those cases. Absolutely. Uh, and that's definitely a big part of it, right? Is, uh, I mean, I think it's, it kind of ties into like orthorexia and, and almost taking mm -hmm. maybe some behaviors that are good, you know, eating vegetables. That's great. Go for it. That's awesome. Um, but when you take it to an extreme and it naturally starts to run your life and if you don't work out that day, you get anxiety and 
you feel you feel bad about yourself, right? Like those are those are the times where you know that it's it's gone too far. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was a great ad. That was a very very good ad. Um, Thanks. Anything anything to an extreme is never good. And uh, mm-hmm. I can I I know plenty of people. I mean, being a trainer and working in gyms, you see a lot of that. Uh, where you're like, hey, like you work out seven days a week for an hour and a half. Rest it might help uh, a lot, you know. <laughs> um, so the the hardest question, if you're ready for it, uh, okay, ready. And I always throw it in at the end because it's a little curveball. And it's a little exciting. Uh, <laughs> so I think I'm very interested. I mean, like once again, the the your book changed my life. Like it's it's something where like I see things differently, and uh, I think contextually in you know in in all of the, the current events and, you know, what's happening. It's, it's made me be very mindful of myself. And I, and I, number one, just want to say, I very much so appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate you, you taking the time to be on the podcast and, and write the book, but I'm also very interested to hear, you know, when you look back at all of the things that you've experienced and, and also all of the things you've learned and unlearned, um, over the, the course of your career, uh, what do you think was the biggest surprise to you? Like, what was the thing where you, you really, you learned it and, or unlearned it even, and really saw, wow, this is the last thing that I would have expected. This is not what I was told, or this is, you know, a a big surprise for me. And, uh, and really this is something that like has changed the trajectory for me. Mm, That's such a good question. I mean, it's, it's always kind of hindsight is 2020, right? Like I don't think I necessarily, recognize those moments as they happen. It's more like an accumulation of things. Um, I mean, I think one thing that that really surprised me and that I didn't recognize until a few years later, a few years after I had learned it, was that the social determinants of health have such a, such a greater bearing on our health outcomes than individual health behaviors. And, you know, I had learned some statistics about it and stuff for school, for public health school, and it kind of went in one, in one year and out the other. But then a few years later, I looked at some research and found that, and I include this research in the book too, because it, it was so fascinating. It kind of deserves its own chapter that I didn't have space for in the book. But, you know, if you look at the modifiable determinants of health at a population level, you know, things other than genetics, which we can't change, but things that are modifiable at a societal level or an individual level, only 30% of our health outcomes are um, accounted for by health behaviors, by personal individual health behaviors. And of that, only 10% is, um, or sorry, of of the the total pie, only 10% is attributable to physical activity and food which is mind blowing, right? Because when you think about what we're taught as, you know, food and nutrition and physical activity professionals, we're taught that like food and exercise are the be all end all, right? It's, that's all there is. And if you eat right and move right, that you're going to be healthy. And if, you know, that's only 10% of the, th- of the health outcomes that we have any sort of individual and societal control over, it's kind of totally flipping the conventional wisdom on its head. And that, you know, other 70% or in, in some research, it's even 75% that, um, you know, of, of the modifiable health outcomes is due to social determinants of health. So things like racism, things like access to care, you know, that disproportionately are not accessible to people of color and people, um, you know, lower income people, right, socioeconomic status, experiences of discrimination, um, unequal access to clean air. You know, we know that black communities tend to live in areas that are more polluted and that white communities tend to do the disproportionate amount of polluting. Um, All of those things have a, a far greater impact on people's health outcomes than any individual behavior could and certainly than what you eat or how you move your body. And so, you know, as health professionals, I think it's all of our duty to inform ourselves about this and to work to change those systems, to work to change the systems that, you know, keep so many people from accessing well-being, whatever that looks like for them. And there is no one way for it to look. But, you know, if, if you know, 30, if only 30% of our health outcomes, modifiable health outcomes have anything to do with our behaviors, we've got a whole lot of work to do on the social determinants of health and on changing systems and structures that stand in the way of people's well-being. Wow. Uh, 
I mean, that's, I, I didn't even realize that it was even up to 75%. And, uh, and I think that's, that's such a, I mean, to me as a coach, like that's, that's almost like the thing that I want to like plant my flag in the ground, similar to you, where it's like, all right, like, I'm not going to stand for this. Like, this is, this is BS. Like, let's actually, let's change this stuff. Like, because I think that's, that's so important because it's like, you can, you can either be very like, for lack of a better way to say it, like, um, reactive and be like, Oh, like, you know, people are, are, you know, experiencing chronic illness. Like we should try to, you know, prevent it at like the, the symptomatic level rather than like the systematic level. Like why, why are these symptoms presenting themselves almost, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, And I think like, they said finding what are the what are the systems that are in place that are not providing equal access to all of these things that that would make somebody um, a, a, a person who's actually able to to live a longer life and, and, a, and a healthier life. I mean, I think that's that's amazing. Um, I'm I'm blown away. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely look up that study and put it in the show notes so everybody can read it because. Yeah. I think that's something where uh, you gotta you gotta learn that stuff and be able to really acknowledge it and, and be mindful of it. You know, um, is there anything else you wanna you wanna throw in there? Anything else you wanna add? No, I mean I could talk about this stuff forever, but <laughs> I feel like <laughs> we we covered a good amount of ground for today. I'll let people yeah. uh, digest this. Yeah, uh, I feel the same way. I'm like, oh man, I'm like so jazzed up. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> and then I mean, as far as getting in touch with you, I know. Um, you're active on, on Instagram. Your book is obviously amazing. You have courses. Um, would you recommend that a coach does one of your courses? Yeah, I think that could be really useful for people. Um, I have a course called Intuitive Eating Fundamentals that takes people through the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really helps troubleshoot a lot of the things that come up for people when they're starting intuitive eating. And it's I've had a number of coaches and dietitians and therapists and people of all different kinds of backgrounds, you know, professional backgrounds go through this and say that it was really helpful to them to do this personal work so that they could take that to their clients. And, you know, it's, it's tough work, right? It's like healing your relationship with food and your body and a lot tends to come up. But I think that, you know, if we're going to commit to doing this anti-diet work and helping our clients recover from diet culture, we have to do the work ourselves too. We have to, you know, know what it's like to walk in those shoes or to, to go through that process of healing from diet culture. And it can be very profound for sure. Um, and I have continuing education credits for that course for dietitians. I am, you know, at some point hopefully can get like certified to do CE credits for other um, backgrounds, but I've had people go through it who are trainers or, you know, other professions that just submitted the completion certificate to their, um, you know, certifying body and, and had it accepted. So it could be continuing education too. Um, so you can find out more about that on my website as well, which is christyharrison.com. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, even if you don't get any continuing edu- education credits for it, I would assume that it's still worth it because like the, the outcome is far more than, uh, than a, a CEU or a CEC or whatever people want to call it. You know, it's, you're actually going to help people and, and be a better coach as a result. So, you know, to me, I would say, even if, you know, even if it, that doesn't work, like that's still, it's such a valuable skill to have that, that really solidifies your impact on the world that um, makes it very much so worthwhile. Um, I awesome. agree. I think, I think it's important for people to do their own work in this space, you know, to be able to really offer something of value to, to our clients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, uh, I'm all jazzed up. I'm, I'm so happy that we got to talk. And uh, again, thank you so much for, for all the work that you do. Me too. Thank you so much, Dan.